You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge here on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much uh, for joining us today. Uh, this is Mike Karuchak, your host for today, alternating weeks with Dr. Hal. Um, I've got very special guest and uh, newest member of our Docs for Patient Care Foundation board, uh, Sally Pipes from Pacific Research with us today. Thanks, Sally, for coming along. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me, and I'm delighted to be involved with Docs for Patient Care. It's an absolutely fabulous organization, and it's needed now more than ever. Yes, indeed. We're, we're grateful to have you on board with, uh, with so many things going on in the uh, rapidly changing uh, political and healthcare climate. So uh, we can just kind of jump right in here. I guess we're, I don't know if I don't, we call this a relative lull. We're kind of between the AHCA and what the Senate might come out with. We have the, the CBO numbers that came out on the uh, revised AHCA today, literally like 30 minutes ago. So we really can't talk about those with much, with much understanding. But there is some things going on. So, Sally, thanks for coming along to, uh, to help us sort of sort this out uh, as we move into the next phase. So, uh, you know, give us your thoughts on just about anything you darn well pleased, to be honest with you. Um, we're going to, I guess, talk about AHCA first. Well, well, thanks, Mike. And as everyone knows, I mean, President um, Obama, President Trump, I believe, was really um, elected um, president because the American people uh, realized that Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was failing. And uh, Mr. Trump, when he was campaigning, went to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, two weeks before the election, and said. I am going to repeal and replace disastrous Obamacare. And that really resonated with people in states that were kind of, you know, up in limbo, in uh, lim- limbo like um, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. And I think that really was what sort of um, sealed the deal for Mr. Trump being, being elected. And he said over and over again that it is his goal to repeal and replace uh, disastrous Obamacare. He said it's in a death spiral. He said, said this many ways. And so, of course, we thought back on March the 24th uh, when the um, when Paul Ryan came up to the podium and said they were going to, um, the House was going to vote on the AHCA, the American Health Care Act. Um, but instead of saying they were going to vote, he said, I'm withdrawing the AHCA because I don't feel that we have enough votes in the House to to pass it. And so there, that was the day after the seventh anniversary of Obamacare. So that was a bit of a, um, a bit of a, a bit of a shock um, yes. to me and to many. And, and there was a lot of question because there was big dissension, as you know, between the members of the moderate Tuesday group and the more conservative Health Freedom Caucus. So anyway, that didn't happen. But then on May the fourth, the House uh, Freedom Ca- the um, House Freedom Caucus and the moderate Tuesday group, um, uh, you know got together because of two amendments that came out, and so it passed on May the 4th. Um, it, it was voted on 217 to 213. That was before the Congressional Budget Office had costed out what was in um, the, the new AHCA, but it did, it did pass. And so now... Everyone is sort of on tenderhooks. What is the Senate going to do? We've heard so many differing reports. We've heard, um, you know, uh, House uh, Speaker Paul Ryan saying they will be voting on repeal and replace in August. Secretary of HHS, um, Dr. Tom Price, has said August. Uh, Senate uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he's not sure when they're going to vote on it. He doesn't want to be rushed. So, um, you know, it's and then there are so many competing um, 
views within the senators, between those senators who are more conservative, libertarian, those who are more more moderate. And, of course, as we know, the uh, Republicans only have 52 votes in the Senate, not which means they could only get a, a simple majority and have to do something through budget reconciliation. They don't have the 60 votes where they could just, um, you know, move forward. Well, see, maybe you can help us with this. You know, I get frustrated trying to think about this, Sally, because as you said in the beginning, you know, our, our North Star that we're trying to navigate by is a complete repeal of Obamacare, complete repeal, and replacement with something that is well thought out, that allows market forces to work their magic, to do all those things. So that's the North Star. Beyond that, you have two arguments, right? Number one is the purists who say, that's the goal, that's what we were put here to do, that's what we're going to do. And then you have the folks who describe themselves as political realists who say, well, no, 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 we can't do that. We have budget reconciliation hurdles to do that reduces the amount that we can do. We have other political realities that say we need a certain number of votes in the Senate and a certain number of votes in the House. So my question is how – what's the right answer between those two extremes? I mean is it reasonable to say – reconciliation be damned we can we can repeal that like we did with the supreme court justice pass something that's pure or do you respect those limits and uh, i just i don't know where to where to put my my heart in this i know exactly well my my um if 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 i were running the world if i were the imperial potentate i mean i would say you know damn the torpedoes let's you know vote to um, uh, fully repeal Obamacare and replace it with a market-based plan that will lead to, I think, more coverage and lower costs. But, you know, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, I'm not a politician. And so you have, you know, the senators such as Rand Paul and Ted Cruz and Mike Lee who really, you know, want a health care plan that replaces entirely Obamacare and brings about um a market-based plan, but then you have other senators such as um, Shelley Amour-Capito from West Virginia, uh, Rob Portman, um, and, um, and a number of others, uh, Bill, Senator Bill Cassidy, who are, you know, in a fuss over, you know, um, ending uh, the Medicaid expansion program, which of course has cost a lot of money and is not really working well for for patients who are on the expanded Medicaid program because they can't find doctors or the waiting list is too long. So you have that. Then you have senators such as uh, Susan Collins uh, from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska who are, you know, all very concerned about funding for Planned Parenthood. So, you know, to, to get a majority um, of 52 votes uh, making um, – you know, passing um, a Senate uh, 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 repeal uh, bill through budget reconciliation, that the, and one that sort of meets with the, the goals of the parliamentarian. I mean, it's just going to be very difficult. But I think you know that the the Republicans promised the American people over and over again they were going to do this, and I think they have to do it because if they don't, um, I think it's going to be very um, difficult for the Republicans in the 2018 elections, which is, you know, Mike, are just around the corner. Yes. Um, people are already campaigning, and I think people will say, well, you promised you would do this, you know, to uh, the Republican candidate, and you didn't, and so, you know, why should I vote for you again? And if the Republicans, you know, lose uh, their majority in the 
um, Senate, which is very small. I, I doubt they would lose the majority in the in the House. I don't know, but I mean, this, there's so many ramifications for this. So, is it? I read an article the other day that said that the even the Senate parliamentarian is merely an advisor. That 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 person answers to one of the senators, and I don't remember who that is exactly, but uh, that uh, that even those recommendations can be ignored in favor of passing whatever the Senate chooses to pass. I mean, would it be worth invoking that kind of a nuclear option or something similar? Well, to my mind, yes, it would be. And I think, you know, um, the longer uh, people are in office, I think the less... Um, Sort of renegade they are, but I think I think I think that at this point it really would be you know we've been fussing around you know over this I mean since Mr. Trump was elected president on November eighth and then of course earlier this year um, Dr. Tom Price who was a member of Congress um, who was chair of the House Budget Committee and who is a medical doctor himself as you know an orthopedic surgeon I mean he he was appointed to that position we've been talking about this and yet we keep getting wrapped up in um, in sort of um, all kinds of turmoil about about doing this and I think you know if 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 if, if we just do things that tweak Obamacare. We do repairs. We do fixes, which I think, you know, some the a couple of the amendments under the the new AHCA, these that where states could um, apply for waivers to um, get out of the essential health benefit plan and to get out of community rating, um, which of course they would then have to um, set up their own high risk pool. But if 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 those states that do apply for um, waivers and get them, um, they will. You know that will, there, those are a couple of good things, but the problem is, Mike, that I see that some of the large states that love Obamacare, they're not even going to apply for these waivers, like California, New York, which are both dancing around with a single payer uh, healthcare bills right at this very moment. And so, you know, if um, so, you know, I really would love to see the essential benefit plan and the community rating, you know, be eliminated. At the, at the federal level so that we don't have some people, you know, having, you know, having, still having the essential benefits and having the community rating three to one, uh, ratio where insurers can't charge, uh, people different prices based on their status, their health status. I mean, this is really, um, this would, you know, if, if this passes with these state waivers, this is really Obamacare light. And I think it gives a big opening in the future for, because the Republicans won't hold the Senate and the House forever. They won't hold the presidency forever. Who's to say that, you know, in an, under a new administration, they won't say for those states that, you know, got the waivers on these two issues. Who's to say that, you know, they wouldn't come in and say, well, we're getting rid of those waivers, which were good for 10 years. And so you're back to building, you know, further on Obamacare. Exactly. There there was an interesting uh, quote from uh, Charles Krauthammer, I don't know, a week before last or something, that said that this, this amended AHCA, uh, really is is a bad thing and maybe ironically setting us on a course for single payer because it seems to incorporate the assumption that there's really no way to make health care costless, that the only question they're asking is how do you pay for it as opposed to how do you make it cost less on a cash transaction level, that that, that question's now gone. Now it's just a matter of how do we find enough food to feed the beast. Right. Well, and, and Charles Crowdhammer, yes, I remember he said that. And so, and, and then, of course, just um, last week, um, um, Mark Bertolini, who is the CEO of Aetna, as you know, 
Aetna has come out and said that they are not going to participate in any in, in, uh, insurance exchanges next year. Humana has said the same. Some of the other insurers are wondering what you know what they're going to do. But as as we all know, um, insurers have been dropping out of the um, healthcare.gov and the state exchanges in droves because they have lost so much money. And so Mark Bertolini came out and said, well, you know, maybe it's time that we had you know a national debate on single payer. Now I don't know whether he thinks that you know if we had a single payer system that that Aetna would be the insurer that the government would hire but certainly being from Canada I mean when the government took over the health care system um, in 1984, and there is no private health um, coverage in Canada for anything that can be provided under the Canada Health Act. I mean, a number of the insurers that were there at the time, um, MSA, MS, uh, CUNC, MSP, they all thought that, well, we'll be chosen as the insurer, and the government just said, no, there's no private insurance, and we, we the government, are the insurer. And then the same thing, I'm sure, would happen here, and it would be very detrimental to the American people. If the, the people who, yeah, you know... Ten seconds to the end of the segment. Go ahead. So it's going to be very detrimental to the health of, of the American people if we move to a single-payer uh, system. All right. We're at the end of segment one uh, with special guest Sally Pipes. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest and newest board member of Docs for Patient Care Foundation, Sally Pipes from Pacific Research. We're talking about everything that is healthcare policy on this day in late May. Um, we're talking about AHCA. We're going to start a little conjecture on what the Senate might do with their version of healthcare reform. Uh, so, Sally, I'm sorry to have interrupted you mid-sentence to switch segments, but I'll just kind of let you pick up where we left off talking about uh, Canada and dialogue about single payer that the Democrats are trying to push. Well, and, I'm, and so I was saying that, you know, in a country like Canada where private health insurance is, is outlawed, the average Canadian today waits 20 weeks, that's five months, from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist. This is the longest wait since wait times were measured and double what the wait time was back in 1993. And so for, for the American people, if we don't, I mean, if we do... Um, do Obamacare light, we repair Obamacare, we re- fix Obamacare. Um, as some of the people, such as Senator uh, Bill Cassidy, uh, Senator Susan Collins, two of the more liberal um, Republican senators, this just opens up the path for, you know, the, the we, we won't have universal, um, um, we won't have 
we won't eliminate the number of uninsured. The cost of health care is going to continue um, to rise. And so they'll say, well, we, we need the government to take it over. They, only the government can manage, you know, a system like the American health care system. The price could be cheaper under under single payer, but that's because the government would set a global budget on what they what percentage of gross domestic product they want to spend on health care. And as a result, um, that will be a lot lower than the current 18.2%, but you will have, you know, people will have long waits, care will be rationed, so the older you are, the less likely it'll be that you're able to get coverage and and the the latest treatments and technologies just won't be available so it's really important i think that the republicans i mean they were in the in the opposition for so long and they've been talking since the bill became law on march 23rd 2010 they for seven years they've been saying almost seven years that they were going to repeal and replace they've got to the people voted for that they've got to um carry through carry through with that and when when you hear groups like the congressional but uh, the congressional budget office saying well 24 million people will will lose um their coverage if um if obamacare is you know replaced well the thing is that i think that number is grossly overinflated. i mean there was a cbo that predicted that by now we'd have 25 million people on these on the exchanges um and in fact the number is closer to 12 it's almost half so a i don't you know agree with that number of 24 million plus that's assuming that everybody if there are no more exchanges and everybody had exchange coverage they you know did, couldn't get health care a lot of those people if they if we opened up the market would have the opportunity to go into the market and get a health care plan that isn't that doesn't have 10 essential benefits mandates on it and they would be able to get a, a plan that has a deductible and has premiums that suit the needs of their family because as we know all of these mandates add 20 to 50 percent to the cost of coverage so a lot of people that have this exchange coverage they, a, they're finding the premiums extremely difficult because as we saw today in a study that came out from HHS that from 2013 to 2017, premiums have gone up on average 105%. And the deductibles, I mean, if you... If you're um, a middle-class person, you have a bronze plan, and the deductible for your family is $12,300. You can't use your co- the coverage that you have because you can't afford to. You can't afford to, you know, put out $12,300 before uh, your insurance plan kicks in. Well, that's in addition to the premiums that, that are killing you. I mean, this, you know, the, traditionally, historically, the choice was, uh, you know, high premium, low deductible, or low premium, high deductible, but this is the worst of both worlds. This is high premium, high deductible, and yet, you know, they're, they're trying to sell this as the new normal, which, you know, that, that to me is one of the scariest parts is that we're just all supposed to accept this, you know, as, as the way things are, and, and nobody, fewer and fewer people. Are, are daring to ask the fundamental questions about just how do you just make it cost less by creating a system that creates downward pressure on prices. And the only way you can do that is to, you know, minimize the footprint of uh, the third-party payer. And who made the CBO God uh, or, or, or the writer of gospel? Uh, right. Know, in, when, in terms of their- of, yeah, none of their predictions come through anyway. I mean, I, I, I just managed to glance at, at their report today, literally 60 seconds before we got together on the air here. And Me there too, was, yep. <laughs> There was one, uh, you know, they talked about the drop in coverage of some 24 million people, but I mean, there's most of the people, two thirds of the Obamacare expansion was Medicaid expansion. Right. And so you have, yeah. yeah, you have 12 million people. So 10, somewhere in the range, 10 to 12 million people have exchange coverage, half of what the CBO predicted. Of those, 
um, you know, um, about 85% are getting subsidies to purchase coverage that they can't afford to use. And then the, um, you know, 19, only 19 states did not expand their Medicaid programs, the program for low-income Americans. So those states that did, you know, expand, we now have um, an additional 15 million people on Medicaid. We have 76 million people in this country on Medicaid. And, you know, it was just sort of a buy they bought the states by offering, you know, a financial incentive to add new people to Medicaid, but the Medicaid program is not working for the people, excuse me, who are on Medicaid. If you can't, you know, find a, if you can't find a doctor or you can't get a doctor's appointment, what happens? You turn up at an emergency room because no one can be turned away from an ER in this country. And the whole idea of Obamacare was that, you know, um, emergency room use is very expensive and that with with having coverage under the exchanges and with the subsidies or, or Medicaid coverage, you wouldn't turn up at an, at an emergency room. But, in fact, we've seen emergency room use up um, um, by these people who are on Medicaid because it's just they, they, they doctors don't take them because the reimbursement rates that they're getting are just too low. Well, I, I can tell you from working in the trenches of health care every day, Sally, it, it, sometimes it's even worse than that. I mean, I've had patients, you know, with, with head and neck cancer walk through the door that, you know, they can come and see me because we take Obamacare exchange plans. Unfortunately, the hospital I work at, which is a member of the major academic medical group in Atlanta, does not take Obamacare exchange plans. And so although I can see this patient, I can't operate on them. I can't do their surgery and I can't get, get them care and... I've got even. I don't even have anywhere to refer them because the tertiary medical center in our environment, you know, the backstop the way they're supposed to function, you know, doesn't take Obamacare, and I end up having to send these patients hundreds of miles down the road to a place that will actually take what they have. So it's it's really really bad. You know, you have this mismatch between the doctors that will take it and the facilities that will take it, and if those don't overlap. You know, these folks can, even if they engage the healthcare system in a timely manner with a big problem, they can be in a real bind. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the, the other things is with the, um, you know, high premiums, high deductibles. But insurance companies, because they were losing so much money on the exchanges and many, you know, got out. And as I said, many will not even participate next year. But a lot of um, the insurance companies in their plans as time has gone on, you know, have really reduced the network of doctors and hospitals. And I've talked to a lot of people who said, well, I, had an, I have an exchange. I have, I have coverage. I have an exchange plan. And they call up their doctor's office and the doctor may the nurse will say well actually we don't take that plan or they may take the plan and then they're they're told as you say that they need to you know have some sort of surgery but the hospital that the doctor um, works with is not not in in the network so they can't they can't go so you know what good is is the fact that you might have coverage but you can't use it because because you can't get a doctor or you can't get into the hospital that the doctor works at. I mean, this is not helpful to the very people that the president, that President Obama said he was um, out there, out there to help. So, so what do you think? Uh, what what should the Senate do? What might the Senate do? Um, is they, regarding their intention to start from scratch? Well, so. Um, there's been a bit of a misconception out there. People have been saying that, oh, the AHCA 
um, the House bill has gone to the Senate. The Senate did not, uh, the House did not send it to the Senate because they didn't have a score. So they've been holding off on sending it to the Senate. So this, but the Senate under, um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been holding these working group meetings twice a week to try and sort of build some kind of consensus rather than going through, you know, the, the Senate Health Committee, Health Education, Labor and Pensions, or the Finance Committee. They've been working on this and I don't, I would say I don't think they're anywhere near to any kind of agreement on 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 what kind of plan they're going to endorse probably through budget reconciliation. They're probably Mike not going to do what we would do and just say to hell with it, damn the torpedoes, we're going to go ahead with a real replacement plan. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of cats fighting in this laundry bag and you know how do you how is Mitch McConnell going to organize the people the, the senators who want planned parent planned parenthood funding those who want the medicaid expansion to continue or to phase out at a lot, much lower rate those people that want the the age based um, refundable tax credits to be increased significantly for people at the lower end of the income scale and then the people on the right who really want to repeal and replace obamacare so it's you know, as I say, they've been holding these working group meetings. Um, Dr. Price, uh, 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 head um, head of HHS, Secretary of HHS, and House um, Speaker Ryan have said they think they'll have a deal in September. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he doesn't know when they're going to have one. Um, so it's really kind of all up in the air. I think we're going to have to sort of see what, you know, what comes out of what the CBO score is. There was a lot of discussion in the last few days saying that if the um, CBO score did not reduce the deficit um, enough or as much as it did in the previous version of the AHCA, the, the House may have to go back and re-vote. I don't think that'll be the case. Um, it, it is, they're saying they've got a reduction over 10 years um, of $119 billion. I don't know what, I don't know yet whether that's enough, but I don't think they're going to have to go back to the drawing board at the House level. But I think this will now go forward to, to the Senate, and they're going to have to, you know, work something out. But it's really, my big worry, Mike, is that you know, with all of what was promised, you know, we're not going to see, we're going to see a lot of Republicans be mugwumps. So they're mug on one side of the fence and they're wump on the other. Yes. And they're not going to do what the American people voted them to do. And, you know, you know, as, as my great mentor, the late Nobel laureate in economics, Milton Friedman, always kept saying, when you bring in an entitlement program, it doesn't matter whether it works well or it doesn't work at all or it's not working. These programs are very difficult to get rid of. And we're certainly seeing that now with all the different factions even within the republicans exactly i mean and it makes me wonder if you know the only way that any forward progress gets made is to kind of work outside the system with things like direct primary care where you know it takes root and it, and it becomes popular because people like it and because people choose to use it uh, and we end up doing this in a non-centrally planned way rather than a centrally planned way. I mean, if you think about it, you know, a body that is the mother of all central planning is not going to pass a program that, that relinquishes control because that's not what they do. It's not what they're all about. So I, I don't know, Sally. I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about how this is all going to play out and uh, i think we're about out of time so um i will say thank you very much right now and uh you've been listening to the doctor's lounge on america's web radio with special guest sally pipe stay with us for segments three and four and uh sally thanks again thank you mike we'll keep our fingers crossed that something good will happen yes indeed take care Bye. bye 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak here, your host this week, Dr. K. Thanks very much for sticking around after segments one and two. Had a very nice discussion with Sally Pipes of the Pacific Research Institute and also... I'm pleased and delighted to say the newest member of our Docs for Patient Care Foundation's advisory board. So we look forward to working with her even more than we have in the past uh, and having a great relationship. That's going to be something we are very, very much looking forward to. So we just finished a discussion with her. And we had talked about the AHCA, both the old version and the new version, and uh, we, we had just made mention of the uh, Congressional Budget Office report that just came out uh, literally hours ago uh, on the 24th of May. Uh, haven't had a chance to really look at that while I was talking to Sally, but uh, in the break here between segments two and three, I kind of turned the recorder off and took a little extra time uh, to uh, have a look uh, at this uh, CBO report. Um, before I go into that, though, a couple of, of uh, business items. Uh, we are the Doctors' Lounge on America's Web Radio. We are sponsored by the Doctors for Patient Care Foundation. We are a 501c3 organization that believes in the magic of the free market to bring solutions to the healthcare problems facing our country today. We're losing focus of that. That you know, we say that every week. I say that every week. Um, it kind of rolls right off the tongue, and it's easy to not think about it very much. But the problem is right now as we look at the AHCA version 1 version 2 um, we are drifting away from that concept uh, we are drifting away from free markets and we are losing track of the most important question to ask which is how to make health care cost less that's not the same as asking how do we pay for it if all you ask if the only question you ask is how do you pay for it without asking how do you make it cost less you only come up with solutions that feed the beast. And the more you feed the beast, the bigger the beast gets. There are no downward pressure on prices. And even something like the AHCA, if they can create a version that passes both houses that Donald Trump will sign, that goes into law, all it does is figure out how to pay for where we are right now. That might be fine for right now, 
But it's not enough for next year and the year after and the year after that because if we just keep throwing money at the beast with no free market downward pressure on prices, the solution is at best temporary. It will not last because the solution will grow until there's not enough money to pay for it. Uh, it's going to continue to grow until it finds downward pressure on prices somewhere or unless we as a country re-engineer this thing to feed it even more. And at some point it's going to you know, consume the entire country at that rate. So the free market concept is a very important one. Uh, I don't want to just give it lip service without really getting deep into it. But uh, if you like what you hear on this show and you like what you hear from uh, me and from Dr. Hal on his weeks, uh, we need your support. We are certainly grateful for your time uh, as you listen to us every week on America's Web Radio. Um, but we need your financial support as well. Uh, we, the board of Doctor Patient Care Foundation, donate our time. Uh, we are not compensated for anything that we do. Uh, but we still have expenses. It still costs money to put this show on. It costs money to maintain a board, to maintain our institutional integrity as a 501c3. Uh, these things do not happen without financial support. So please, 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 please go to Docs for Patient Care, our website. That's www.d, the numeral four, PC, D4PC. It's four characters. D4PCfoundation.org. Uh, the homepage will take you immediately where you can contribute. anything that you can spare uh, to keep us going if you like what you hear. Uh, It will not happen on a long-term basis without your support, and it's more important now than ever. This may be, in the history of our country, our last best shot over the next year or so uh, to come up with some way of delivering health care in this country that has some chance of working. So... Sally and I were talking about the HCA. We were talking about this report from the Congressional Budget Office. So I took some time between segments to take a shot at reading this. I had never looked at a CBO report before. Odds are you have not either. Uh, My first impression looking at this is that it is a mere 38-page document, uh, which is certainly less than the hundreds and thousands of pages of regulation uh, that we see, I mean, in terms of legislation, not so much regulation, but legislation. And uh, so it, it's it's a bit more digestible. The other thing that's interesting about it is it's actually written in English that human beings can read and understand. So uh, another slight cause for optimism. So uh, I'm going to review for you how this is structured and and, uh, and and try to give you some of the findings from the parent document itself, since we have so many reviews out there already. We have so many people tweeting and making their own party-driven proclamations about what the CBO had to say about the American Health Care Act uh, that I decided uh, that I would take a little time and go for the parent document and see if I can give you something that's a little more direct, uh, a little more from the original source. So the document is organized into an eight-page summary, and then the remaining 30 pages behind that are sort of what backs up the summary. So what I'm going to do is walk you through the summary, and then where I find uh, things that I take issue with, then uh, we get deeper and go into the, the actual body of the document to see if we can find anything to back up these claims. So here we go. The most interesting thing about this document is not what's on page one, but what's on page eight, which is the last page of the summary, which is sort of a, uh, what do you want to call it, a, a disclosure of uncertainty, a disclaimer, I guess that's a word I'm looking for, a disclaimer uh, about what is in here. And it's called Uncertainty Surrounding the Estimates. 
Uh, it says the ways, and I'm reading directly from the document here, the ways in which federal agencies, states, insurers, employers, individuals, doctors, hospitals, and other affected parties would respond to the changes made by the legislation are all too difficult to predict. So the estimates discussed in this document are uncertain. In other words, everything we wrote in here, we really don't know what the heck we're doing. We don't really know whether anything we're going to say is right or not. And we know they've been wrong in the past, right? The CBO's uh, estimate uh, or, or analysis of Obamacare years ago said there would be 25 million people in the exchanges by now, as Sally Pipes brought up in the last segment. There are less than half of that. So we know that the CBO is wrong um, uh, you know, on a regular basis, and 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 you know, it's it's a heady task. I don't mean to bash them too much. You know, it's a heady task to predict the future. It's a heady task to take a two thousand page piece of legislation to figure out what it's going to do to the country ten years down the road. So, I think you have to take what the CBO says with a grain of salt, not because they're incompetent, but because the task they're charged with doing is essentially impossible which is to take extremely complex regulation in a country of hundreds of millions of people and try to figure out what's going to happen when you mix all those things together and let it simmer for 10 years. Uh, you know, it, it's almost ridiculous to even try to make these, uh, you know, predictions. And, you know, they, they put so much in here that each political party, Republicans and Democrats, can jump on as vindication for their point of view. So I'm going to try and boil this down a little bit more. So the first thing we, they say – well, not the first thing. They bury it on page 8. The most important thing they say is that everything that's in this document is highly uncertain. So with that in mind, let's just dump in. So number one, effects on the federal budget, right? You've probably heard this number that the the, the AHCA in, in, in the updated version will save the government $119 billion over 10 years. And they have a very nice, actually fairly clear for a doc, government document bar graph that shows where all the pluses and minuses are and how those all those pluses and minuses add up to a negative $119 billion. So the big savings comes from reduced Medicaid expenditures, uh, from switching Medicaid um, from a, a benefit program to a block grant program uh, uh, to the states where the states administer the benefit and also the termination of the enhanced federal matching funds that come with the ACA. That's the big $834 billion savings. Uh, the other major savings is um, that the Obamacare subsidies and the exchanges are eliminated but immediately replaced um, with a number slightly less. But still, um, you know, the tax credits um, that go, uh, you know, the age-adjusted tax credits that are a part of this. Uh, and, and then we have some losses regarding the deficit regarding uh, lost penalty payments since uh, those penalties go to zero, uh, and then uh, a lot of the taxes that go away, a lot of the medical device tax, uh, you know, uh, the um, uh, investment income tax on high-income earners, et cetera, et cetera, that all these punitive taxes all go away. And when you add all those up, you get a reduction in the deficit of $119 billion um, over 10 years. So not a, not a bad graph to sort of lay it out for you. Then I come, came across something very interesting because then they looked at the cost, then they looked at what the effect on insurance coverage would be. And this is the other big number that you see that's already been tweeted ad nauseum, which is that the AHCA will kick 23 million Americans off of insurance rolls. 23 million Americans will lose their insurance by 2026 over the next 10 years. And, you know, that it, it's so easy. 
it's so easy to just sort of accept these numbers as gospel because the CBO is quoted and, and you know, again, they're trying to predict the future and, and, and they don't know what they're doing any more than the weatherman does predicting 10 years down the road. But anyhow, so they've got this number that everyone's going to talk about for quite some time, uh, certainly on all the news networks, uh, about 23 uh, million uh, lost of covered covered lives. And But there's a piece of fine print, and this is where I went out of the summary and into the parent document to dig a little deeper, because all of these predictions have assumptions behind them. You can't predict more than a week into the future for anything unless you make assumptions about what's going to happen. Well, one of the assumptions that the CBO has baked into that 23 million number is the assumption that if the Affordable Care Act is left in place, that additional states will choose to expand their Medicaid program. Now, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe somebody needs to tweet me or call me or email me and tell me that I'm missing something obvious here. But I think the states have pretty much declared themselves regarding whether or not there's going to be any sort of Medicaid expansion in their state or not. I don't see my state of Georgia suddenly changing its mind and deciding to expand uh, Medicaid unless there was a major change in leadership, which I don't think we expect of that magnitude. So that $23 million or $23 million, uh, loss of, of, of covered lives really uh, has a ridiculous assumption built into it, and I'd love to know what that number is if you don't make that assumption. So that's bad. Uh, then they make some um, comments about the stability of the health insurance market. They say under current law, under the ACA, that although premiums are rising quite a bit, that's okay because the subsidies rise with it, and so people are ins- are insulated from rising premiums. Well, that's terrible. Again, it circles back to if you if you completely insulate people from cost increases, costs will continue to increase. And how far do you chase your tail up past the clouds into orbit with costs and subsidies? We see the same thing in uh, you know in in college with tuition going crazy and financial aid going up with it. That, that there's nothing to stop that process. So what else is in here? They talk about uh, the fact that half the states will probably not take the waiver offer, right? Remember, the HCA has a waiver offer built in that's state by state. Uh, but the more uh, you take the waiver offer and get rid of minimum essential benefits or you get rid of the um, the differential in community rating versus uh, medical underwriting, uh, that you, you may lower insurance rates on average, uh, but you will not reduce them across the board. So uh, we're about out of time. Uh, so uh, we'll pick this up later on. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge here on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for joining us today. Dr. Karuchek, Mike Karuchek, that's me, your host today. And I was a little dazed and confused. I thought I was supposed to be on last week and I was getting ready for the show. And they said, no, you're on this week. So a little unexpected for me to be here. But again, I'm delighted to have the privilege of speaking to you uh, for another hour of the Doctor's Lounge. So thanks very much once again for listening. The Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by... As you know, the Doctor Patient Care Foundation, a 501c3, we support free market solutions, free market-based solutions for the problems facing healthcare today. Uh, we enjoy a wonderful working relationship with the Heartland Institute. Uh, I enjoy working with Mike Hamilton over there and a little bit of a programming informational note. They are working on an article on tort reform based on uh, HR, I think 2015 it is, uh, which is in process in the U.S. House of Representatives. So they're using that <clears throat> bill, excuse me, as a, uh, as a jumping off point to do a, a sort of an update on uh, tort reform, if you will. So keep your eye out. Uh, and for the Heartland Institute, uh, I presume they're going to publish that in Healthcare News, uh, their publication. So read the Healthcare News, listen to the Doctor's Lounge, and uh, you will not go wrong with uh, healthcare policy. So, so where are we in the grand scheme of things? Uh, this is such a crazy news cycle. We've got major stuff coming out every day, uh, much of it involving healthcare policy. We have a a bill that has passed the House, uh, which is the subject of great debate, whether you're a purist and think it didn't go far enough or a realist and think that this is, has to be, um, you know, it has to be crafted with political limitations in mind, uh, or perhaps a pragmatist, uh, since the Senate has declared in no uncertain terms that they're going to start with a clean sheet of paper and draft their own health care bill, which they sort of imply um will have nothing to do with how the house bill has been crafted and so there may be a very wide gap between the house version of what obamacare repeal and replace should look like versus the senate version of what obamacare replace uh, repeal and replace should look like and then some sort of uh you know reconciliation process between the two of those which then has to turn around and pass the senate reconciliation process to become something that gets to the president's desk. So a long, long way to go uh, in terms of, you know, where the, where this is going. So, you know, we went from singing uh, happy days are here again in November, not so much because of who was elected perhaps, but um, but who wasn't elected. And now we're singing a different song, old Led Zeppelin song from 1969 called, you guessed it, Dazed and Confused. So very difficult to figure out where we are. I think uh, Charles Krauthammer had an interesting comment um, on on Fox News last week, and uh, I'm going to play that little soundbite for you. Here we go. Republicans are not arguing the free market anymore. 
they have sort of accepted the fact that the electorate sees health care as not just any commodity. It's not like purchasing a stake or a car. It's something that people now have a sense a government ought to guarantee. That's a right. So, yeah, this is interesting. And he went on to, to declare that he thought we were, you know, halfway down a 14 year road. So seven years left. And within seven years, we would paradoxically end up at single payer in spite of the fact that at least in theory, we're headed, you know, veering the other direction from where Obamacare has us now. But his point, I think, is a very good one, which is that the, the assumptions behind the discussion are that somehow the government has to play a central role in the delivery of health care in the United States. And, you know, that's not something that we're very comfortable with or very happy with. Um, but these assumptions seem to have worked their way into the American psyche because Obamacare has sort of, you know, been based on the uh, notion that, that health care um, is a right for everyone to have. And I'm not here to argue that point one way or the other. I'm simply here to say that it's it's made its way into the discussion. And so now it's not a, it's a matter of, you know, guaranteeing people coverage and talking about preexisting and age premium ratios and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I, I agree with him maybe 75 percent. Uh, the the point that I disagree upon, I think, is that if, if, if we rely on the government to come up with a solution, then yes, that's where we're going to end up. I think where we need to find the biggest ray of hope at this point is that uh, the solutions aren't going to come from the government. You can't expect a, a, a centrally planned process, such as federal legislation, to produce anything except a centrally planned paradigm for the delivery of health care. So – it, it, it's probably foolish to expect anything more. I, I think it's going to come from things like direct primary care and and, and other things uh, that, like David Goldhill calls green shoots. You know, experiments that happen all by themselves, spontaneously, that don't come from a inside the Beltway. So you know, it's 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 a matter of how broadly you're willing to think. Uh, depends on whether or not you agree with uh, Charles Krauthammer's proclamation that, that single-payer is going to be uh, inevitable within seven years. I am still more optimistic than that, not because of what I think the government can do, but what I think that every doctor can do and every patient can do and doctors and patients can do working together, or so we hope. So now then, to the topic that I promised uh, ahead of time, which is to talk about, uh, again, a sort of a health IT update, sort of a, uh, a comment on the social situation in healthcare right now, sort of apart from healthcare policy. Uh, and it all stemmed, ironically, I reach back here and grab my notes way in the back, come back, uh, here is, um, a, a conversation, ironically, that I had in our doctor's lounge. Right, that's our show here, right? The Doctors Lounge, and, and we introduced this show uh, almost three years ago now as the show where doctors go to talk amongst themselves about the things that are important to themselves. Uh, you know, but of course, we want this to be a show that's relevant for patients as well. But this was a conversation in the Doctors Lounge, and ironically, um, I don't get to our Doctors Lounge very much anymore. Uh, too busy doing stuff, too busy finishing my EMR chart notes that take up too much time, too busy talking to my administrator about. Uh, you know, how to get our reporting to work, you know, those sorts of things. But I managed to get a little break in the clouds and actually walk over a couple of buildings to our hospital and go into our doctor's lounge and sit down with doctors that I hadn't seen for a while, whose company I greatly enjoy. Uh, one was Brian Hill, who's been a guest on the show. And if you listen enough, you know him. 
I think Hal had him on within the last couple of months. Uh, and another Dr. Hill, Dr. Susan Hill, uh, someone else I'm also very fond of, a nephrologist. And so we were eating lunch and talking and, and said that, that really none of us had gotten there very much lately and that, uh, you know, if we get there at all, we just take our lunch and put it in a to-go bag and run back to the office and try to eat and work at the same time. And so, you know, the, the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves, as we describe this show to be, um, isn't isn't happening as much anymore and certainly wasn't happening uh, as much anymore. And we talked about how sad that is, not just from a social standpoint, but from the, you know, the the um, the, the interpersonal, the, the way that interpersonal relationships between physicians affect the quality of care that we're able to deliver, uh, that when we refer a patient to another doctor, it is a far more powerful and effective referral if we can say, look, I know this lady, I know this man, we are friends as well as colleagues. We know their families, we know their kids, we talk all the time. Not only do we, you know, engage in the, in the business of patient care and so we know from a technical standpoint that they're good doctors, but we know from an interpersonal standpoint that they're good people. And that sort of thing is Fading away, unfortunately, as care becomes less and less personalized and uh, doctors become more uh, employed by hospitals and less self-employed. And we, we, we now begin to obsess about quality measures as opposed to a very special interpersonal process between doctors and doctors and doctors and patients um, that, that make these things work. Uh, and that, that, that trust that we get with each other, that we can share that trust uh, with our patients. Uh, and that that is beginning to uh, to fade away. And so we had talked about some other things, uh, and it was interesting because at about the same time that that I had this uh, this little conversation, we uh, you know also there were two articles that had come out that we discussed. Uh, uh, one of which was an article that was um, published in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association about the uh, the rules of the game for texting. Uh, the other article that came out was directly addressed, uh, why, you know, conversation that we had in the doctor's lounge, which was that how, how the, the deteriorating quality of communications is uh, hurting healthcare. Um, so we're going to walk through a couple of these articles uh, because I think they're, uh, they're they're kind of interesting. So uh, the the first article was in Forbes magazine. I'm going to reach back here. And- Back to my back table and grab it again. So here it is. This article is written by one Nicole Fisher and published in Forbes uh, May the 2nd, so you know, roughly a week ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, I've had the privilege of, uh, of corresponding with Nicole. It was a long time ago. Uh, we had talked about some articles to submit together and, and, and whatnot, but uh, I do like much of what she uh, writes, and I, and I definitely like this article, although I had some – some disagreements with it, but we'll go ahead and finish this segment talking about the article, and then we'll go into the next segment and finish this stuff up. But uh, the article is entitled 10 Ways That Lack of Communication is Ruining Healthcare. And I think you talk to any doc uh, and they will agree that the, the difficulties we encounter when communicating with each other, whether it's finding time to sit down in the doctor's lounge or being able to text with confidence that we're not going to get busted by the feds um, or that we have enough time to talk to each other after we've satisfied all our quality measures for the day. I think any doctor would agree with that. But the way she lays out, uh, the 10 ways are pretty good. They're not perfect, but we're going we're gonna to go through them. So 
you know, number one uh, in her list, providers do not talk to each other. Well, that's just what we're talking about. Uh, healthcare providers, I'm quoting from the article here. This is, this is uh, her words. Uh, Nicole Fisher, healthcare providers enter into the health field because they care about people. Very true. We want to make the world and the people in it better. Um, but it is a, a fact that, and I don't know what her source is for this, but she quotes this statistic. 30% of malpractice cases between 2009 and 2013 were a direct result of communication failures. Uh, and, and that makes sense to me because, again, we, we have many barriers to communication, uh, one of which is that we're extremely busy, so the idea of picking up the phone and talking to each other you know, just isn't practical, and that's a really, really sad thing that used to be the way that we did things all the time. You know, now when, you know, I get, the staff comes back and says, you know, Dr. So-and-so is on the phone, wants to talk to you right now, I, I cringe, and then I feel guilty and feel bad about cringing uh, because it's kind of like a phone call. i got to stop what I'm doing. i got to make every patient that's in the waiting room wait another five minutes. Um, and, you know, there would be a really easy answer to this. It's this technology that every single one of us uses, which is texting. But physicians are afraid to text. Most of them are. And the ones that aren't afraid to text have horrible HIPAA violations. Uh, you know, I get texts from docs all the time with full patient names, date of birth, room number, all this stuff. And I, I never, you know, I got away from reprimanding a long time ago because that just doesn't work or, or gently saying, hey, you know what, you can't put P, PHI in a phone note. But uh, anyhow, we're coming up on the end of the segment. So we're going to fig- uh, finish this article in segment two. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 